Hello, and welcome to the Identity Paradox Inside the Racial Pharmacon, a podcast examining anti-racist theories and practices aimed at dismantling destructive identitarian politics and ideologies, both in the U.S. and abroad. Please note that discussions deal with very difficult subject matter, so every episode comes with a general content warning. And I'm your host, Carlos Gallego, Associate Professor of English, as well as both Distinguished Teaching Professor in Humanities here at St. Olaf College. This podcast is part of the programming brought to you by the Bolt Chair Endowment. So special thanks to the Bolt family for making this programming possible. If you enjoyed today's podcast, make sure to subscribe for future episodes. And now, the show. Hello, and welcome to the Identity Paradox. I'm your host, Carlos Gallego, and this is part two of our conversation with Dave Nywert, already in progress. Yeah, 58 people died that night and another 800 were wounded. But there were literally thousands of people, there were over 6,000 people in that crowd. And every single one of them was permanently traumatized for the rest of their freaking lives by that event. And that's how these, that's how these things, that's what happens with conspiracism and conspiracy theories. When, when this stuff comes, when, when people act out on this stuff, it just has just powerfully devastating effects. And, um, so yeah, it's 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 really troubling that we uh, are, are so institutionally incapable of recognizing what's happening to us. And just along those points, I do want to put on my literary critic hat for just a second because uh, I the way I read this, I, I found it to be extremely interesting. And I sorry I skipped this paragraph uh, because I was very impressed by the way you start this book uh, and the prologue because you do start with the Stephen Paddock Las Vegas shooting. And it's an epigraph. It's just him basically, you're quoting him saying like, it, you know, it's time for America to wake up, which is essentially the purpose of the red pill to wake Neo up in the film, The Matrix. So right. the idea right. of waking America, waking, which is interesting because then you compare that to woke culture and like, which waking up do we want? What reality do we want to wake the up RT. to? Right? <laughs> exactly. So you quote, you, you start with the epigraph and then you offer uh, evidence by offering the anonymous quote on line in terms of someone basically going online and venting about like this is my reality and i think it gives us an insight into someone who's alienated asking questions right. and vulnerable is at that point you follow that up with a brief analysis and then the foreboding details around lane davis's early years yeah. would be the the right wing online figure who would end up killing his father uh in washington right. correct right so the way I see it, it's almost like, and this is a lit crit hat speaking, uh, the opening pages read as if you're formally replicating the avalanche effect you've been documenting for over a decade and condensing it into that prologue, almost to give the reader a sense of like one thing after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other. And it all culminates in this thing now that's right. a phenomenon that cannot be denied as hate talk in the eliminations. Now we're going to like hate crimes and the violence they spur type of thing. Right. That uh, accurate reading is very Yeah, yeah. No, in fact, I I would say the genesis of Red Pill, Blue Pill was, you know, me thinking about after I'd written Alt America, what can I do next in terms of trying to explain this to people? Because it, I mean, the, the book was my most successful book, but um, wasn't, didn't feel like I, the message was penetrating. Certainly, I don't hear, you know, I hear a lot of people remark in wonder about, oh gosh, these guys live in an alternative universe. And I go, yeah, I wrote a whole book about that. <laughs> Which is the alt part in so many ways, right? It's yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> it's exactly, it's in the title. What do you and think alt means? 
And that's what strikes me. It's very frustrating. Yeah. We can talk about that a little bit later because it's frustrating to me on two fronts. It's frustrating that people are coming to terms, are, are working through their own personal denial and recognizing the reality of authoritarianism on the U- in the United States as a reality now, not as a possibility now. Right. And, that, and that you're not a crazy extremist conspiracist yourself for or saying alarmist. so. That, that's or alarmist. I, that's, yeah. that's what I got dismissed as for a lot of years, yeah. an alarmist. And I and just the other th- reporting facts. And you were reporting facts, which is interesting because you are doing investigative reporting. I mean, you're in the scene. Yeah. You're you're talking to the people in these cultures, which amazes you survive all those cultures and all those talks. But I'm sure growing up in Idaho helped because you know the, you know the parlance, you know the how to read yeah, the room yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, stuff that I probably couldn't get away to. Read. <laughs> who, knows? <laughs> who knows exactly? You know, I just <laughs> smile a lot and stand really tall. So. <laughs> But the point being that the other thing that frustrates me and, you know, other people like, I don't speak German, I know you've been on that uh, podcast with Daniel and Jack, and they talk about it a little bit. One of the things that a lot of us find frustrating is that there's a lot of overlap for points of agreement between some of these alienated working class people that fall victims to these red Mm -hmm. pills and people who don't fall victim to the red pills, but agree that a lot of the same problems that these people are complaining about are not wrong, that they're not, they're not mistaken or irrational by calling attention to their, to the problems that exist. What is borderline irrational, if not completely irrational, is their idea of a solution to some of those problems, right? And so I want to come back to that because I find that really, really frustrating. But the one thing I just want to make sure that we agree on, Trump normalized psychopathic or sociopathic authoritarianism in this country yeah. would you yeah. agree with that yeah absolutely no i mean it's it's why you know i mean yeah there a lot of the reason we see a lot of these videos of this sort of ugly behavior popping up is the fact that everybody has a phone now but i think it's a lot more than that i think that there's uh i think he took the lid off of our national lid yeah and, uh all that- the crawlies came flying out and uh, it, I don't think we're putting the lid back on anytime soon. Have you written any poetry, David? Because no, lid, lid, <laughs> yeah, lid and it rhymes. So I would just start yeah. with that. You never know. You can write political yeah, poetry somewhere. Um, uh, so basically, we've gone from the threat of fascism emerging in this country in the sense of like it can happen here to like yeah. now we're living with fascism yeah, yeah, in this yeah, country. Yeah. And it might get worse down the line. Like in 2024, yeah. we might get a Tucker Carlson or a Cotton or someone else that may not be as immediately repulsive to some people as Trump is, who can come across as a little more charismatic and convincing in their quote unquote rational reasons for why they want to govern the way they govern. Is that a possibility, do you think? Or? Yeah, well, I think a lot of the Democratic guardrails are still holding. Okay. Uh, which we don't have even during the Trump years, we didn't have fascism in the office in power, but uh, what he was doing was tearing down those democratic guardrails. Uh, Yeah. I think that uh, somebody like Carlson, somebody who's charismatic enough might be able to pull it off or at least, you know, become the the figurehead for the movement because I don't know how long Trump is with us, you know, but, I do think the thing about authoritarianism is that it is a natural impulse that that it arises out of the natural desire for security. And everybody has 
some authoritarian impulses. Uh, everybody has uh, that those strands in our personalities. Uh, we all have that desire for security, but uh, for authoritarianism goes is that it it makes well. First of all, it 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 builds on fearfulness. So the more fearfulness you have in the environment, the uh, the greater the sort of authoritarian response becomes in the general public. You know, that's that's really kind of the fuel of authoritarianism is spreading as much fear as you can. And that's why I really think that this, you know, I started seeing the real trend towards authoritarianism beginning after 9-11. And, um, and it just built, you know, and it just built from there. And, and now it's become this overwhelming, this overwhelming threat. And one of the, you know, one of the ways we can think about this that I think is important is that, the, the heroic myth is really central to authoritarianism uh, or the dynamics of the hero, of heroism. Part, a lot of, a lot of uh, well, I'll just say every single right-wing extremist I ever knew and have spent time with sees themselves as heroic. Certainly everybody who was at the Capitol on January 6th saw themselves as heroic, um, as well as, you know, people like uh, Dylan Roof and Anders Breivik and people like that, they all see themselves as heroes out to save the world. Shauna Ford particularly uh, was, was another one who saw herself in heroic terms. And this that's because being a hero, um, it, well, being a hero is, is really central to right-wing politics and the far-right politics and the dynamic. And that's the or the the desire to be a hero is, is really central to its appeal. That's what you know. Why conspiracy theories give you a sense of empowerment is that they make you feel like you can be a hero in your own action movie. You know, you're you're getting the secret knowledge that nobody else is, and it's certainly central to you know when uh, I've spent a lot of time with Proud Boys and their folks over the last four years, and they all. Again, you know, believe that they're being heroic and that they're saving the world from commies and Antifa and whatever and BLM. And and I know that this has arisen. I, you know, I saw all the appeals to heroism that the Oath Keepers were making back in 2009 and 11 in the context of the Tea Party. And this was it's really fundamentally the same thing. One of the, the keys to this dynamic is that being heroic requires an enemy. You have, if you're going to have, if you're going to make yourself out to be a hero, you have to have an enemy. That's all heroes have enemies. And so a lot of the original, a lot of the, the enterprise of being a right wing extremist involves uh, creating enemies, uh, naming enemies. You know, in the, in the 50s, it was commies. In our current milieu, it's Antifa and BLM that they have concocted this enemy of. And before, back in the Tea Party, it was uh, immigrants and Muslims who were the concocted enemy. And and that's so really generating and and, and reifying enemies is is really central to the whole far right dynamic. There's a reason that you know. Umberto Eco in his kind of, I think, seminal essay on fascism uh, listed some 14, I think, attributes of fascism 
and uh, you know he did this from a historical knowledge basis and it was incredibly it's a great essay uh, it's called ur fascism but one of these and one i think one of the most important ones is that he says uh, in fascist society everyone is educated to be a hero and and i think about our current culture where superhero movies are far and away the most popular genre um, where we play uh, video games like Call of Duty and stuff like that that are all about being a hero. Um, we're really, we're really generating a culture that is very conducive to what I would call fascist trends and fascist strains of thought. And, and we're really vulnerable to it. So, and, yeah. And it's interesting because one of the uh, defining characteristics of fascism is when uh, the aesthetic or the form takes over the content of the politics, right? And the, and the form dictates much of the politics. And I see this and it's a lot. It's aesthetic of violence. Aesthetic of violence. Thank you. And I yes. noticed you also referenced the Paxson book. It's like, wow, he's read Burger and Paxson. I'm going to stop checking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what David <laughs> <those guys>. <laughs> Yeah, all those Exactly, all those guys. Yeah, I had and Paxson. Paxson and I uh, did put together... Uh, and, and a couple of other uh, fascist scholars put together a refutation of uh, Jonah Goldberg's uh, liberal fascism oh. back in 2009. It's, oh. You can find it on, on History Channel, I think. Yeah. I'll have or to just, check it yeah. out. Yeah, History uh, News Network. History News Network. History Network. Okay. Uh, I'll yeah. definitely have to check that out because yeah, I find yeah. that extremely interesting. Yeah, yeah. The scholars just kind of dismantled him. <laughs> but you see this in the in the LARPing, right? The live action role playing that some of these people actually attend these events. And you saw this with the Christ shooter in terms of, and you talked about this really well in your book, in terms of like filming it as if it's a video game, living it uh, as if it's a video oh, yeah. game, even when lives did, are at did, stake. Did you see any of the footage from I, I saw some of it, but I couldn't bring myself to watch the whole thing. I couldn't watch any more than about 45 seconds exactly. of it. Exactly. It's just but, too but in your face. It was, it was like watching somebody play Doom. Yep, yep, yep. And this recruits people. It does. This, yeah. And, and people like you and me can't watch more than 45 because we are on the we understand we're on the verge of watching a snuff film. Whereas other people watch it and they're like, oh, that's how you get recognition, attention, heroic yeah. status within society is by enacting some of this. And, and they don't want to also under, don't understand what's happening to them when they're watching that. Um, Robert J. Lifton's written a lot about this in terms of uh, cults and authoritarianist, authoritarian cults uh, about how, you know, he wrote a great book about 9-11 called Superpower Syndrome, where he theorized that basically the whole nation was traumatized psychologically traumatized, psychiatrically traumatized by 9-11 because we all watched that video of those planes going into those towers. And we all watched the video of people jumping out of those exactly. buildings. And that stuff traumatizes yep. people. And it really it makes us fearful. It makes us, it does all those things. It sets us up for authoritarianism. Which is interesting because in your chapter on sacrifices, I found, I found really powerful, especially the way you keep repeating the one sentence word sacrifices throughout the entire chapter as a way of highlighting like another life, another life, another life. And to you, these are all connected by motive. So this whole frustration underlying the Las Vegas Police Department investigation of Paddock and saying, we right. know the where, the when, the how, and the what. What we don't know is the why. And people like you and me are saying, like, it's right there. There's a breadcrumb trail leading to the motive. It's, it's, they're being right. radicalized. There's these cultures encouraging people like Paddock to go out acting alone. 
which makes the lone shooter thesis for me extremely weak because I understand they're acting alone, but they're acting alone within the context of a culture that is no longer physical communities. They are online communities that are perpetrating, even training people how to do this kind of stuff. Sure. Yeah. Well, the whole the whole idea of the lone wolf is is wildly misunderstood. Yeah. You hear media folks talk toss that term out, and it becomes a way of depicting these incidents as isolated incidents. It was just an isolated incident. Yeah, exactly. But in fact, the lone wolf is a specific strategy that was developed by a neo-Nazi named Louis Beam in the late 1980s. He was mm. with the Aryan Nations in Northern Idaho, and he, he came up with this, what he called leaderless resistance strategy, and it had two components. One was to form small action cells, aka militias, and that became the militia movement. I mean, this is this is actually a really sort of uh, the, his, this essay on leaderless resistance was really um, central, uh, had a really important genesis point for a lot of right-wing extremism we saw afterwards. Because, yeah, the, there was the small cells action that he that basically became the militia cells of the 1990s, and, and they were specifically based on uh, Beam's ideas of leaderless resistance as well as what he called the lone wolf. And he had a good example uh, at the time that be, that was actually wildly popular with the radical right. And that was the case of Joseph Paul Franklin, mm. who was an assassin who wandered the country. He shot, he was the guy who shot Vernon Jordan. Uh, he was the guy, he, and he shot mixed race couples all around the country with a sniper rifle. And he, they finally caught him and put him on death row. And he was put to death a few years ago uh, in Missouri. But uh, uh, the guy who wrote the Turner Diaries followed up his, his sort of sequel to it. Pierce? Uh, William Pierce. Yeah, William Pierce. Uh, his sequel to the Turner Diaries was a book called Hunter. That was basically oh, that's right. a, a lone wolf book based on Joseph Paul Frank. Wow. And yeah, it's basically the idea is that, that the lone wolves, if the lone wolves can go out and not have any organizational ties, that will bring down the rest of the movement. That's the best thing because they can wreak all this havoc and have the same terroristic effect of tearing down the public's feeling of security and safety that the government is supposed to be providing. If they can tear that down, that that's what they want, right? right? And, that's, and that was the whole point of the lone wolf strategy. So the, all these actors, including guys like Dylan Roof who act out as lone wolves, we're actually acting out as part of a specific strategy that the radical right, that the right-wing extremists have had in place for 25 years. Yeah, I completely agree. And the way I think of it all the time is like, even lone wolves are raised in packs and you can't take that away from them. So that pack mentality and- That's right leaving a pack to start your own pack or whatever the reasons are that there, you cannot separate the wolf from the pack at some point. They were influenced by someone for some reason. So that's important to keep in mind, I think, in terms of like de-romanticizing the notion of what a lone shooter or a lone wolf is. In, in terms, Yeah, of yeah. It's not just an isolated incident. I yeah. mean, there have been some isolated incidents. There was a of mass shootings, only one or two that I was able to find. Um, there was a church shooting down in Texas where um, it appeared eventually, I think the conclusion was that it was just, it was a, a sort of a familial slash uh, um, church dispute where he walked into the church and just shut down because he was a member of the church. 
there wasn't any political motivation they could find or even any conspiracy theories. Uh, but it was a rare case. Uh, right. Almost every mass shooting that I have looked at over the last 20 years has involved somebody who's been consumed by conspiracy theory. I am same with me, which brings me to the, to the chapter on rabbit holes, which I, th I found the most interesting because that's where you kind of bring out the psychology. Uh, and I think one of the key terms that you introduce in that chapter is the concept of alienation and how yeah. most of these people that fall victim to rabbit holes are people that in one degree or another, uh, are suffering from some form of alienation that they're profound alienation. Kind of, yeah. And that they're looking to resolve, that they're looking for some kind of answer to. So, uh, you refer to the uh, political scientist of uh, Joseph Yusinski, uh, in explaining how the epistemology of the conspiracist is essentially an unhealthy one due to the resistance to what many of us literally call common knowledge, right? Or common sense knowledge, or we agree right. to be common knowledge. Right. Uh, Yusinski mentions parameters. Uh, in describing this pathological, I call it a pathological epistemology. One of the psychologists that you quote, Stephen Lewandowski, describes in terms of conspiracist ideation. In other words, right. there are parameters on what is knowable and unknowable in this alternative reality, which are often determined by alternative facts and what I call ideological fantasies. So my question or my request is, could you please yeah, elaborate? I would add that these are frequently shared violent fantasies. So... I was going to ask you if you could elaborate on the why epistemological parameters or those boundaries and the role of fantasy are so important to conspiracy ideation and so crucial to understanding the red pill or rabbit hole effect. Why those specific ideas of parameters and having specific boundaries are important. Right. Well, it's why we have, why I would say we're in an epistemic crisis right now is that, um, that you know, epistemology or epistemology being how we know the world, essentially the science of, or the logic of how we know the world has been really shattered by the whole uh, conspiracy theory um, universe because they are constantly throwing out stuff. And, and as you mentioned, uh, conspiracy theories in, in up to and really through the early 90s and through 9-11 were always based on, on real things that they, you know, real sort of frequently uh, seemingly contradictory evidence or whatever, or anomalistic evidence. And but beginning somewhere around, like you said, around when Obama was elected, they just went completely off the rails. And basically, started just pulling crap out of their butts. <laughs> That's just that. There's no other way to describe it. No. Just cocking it out of whole cloth. Okay, let's put a nice academic phrase on it. But that's fundamentally what they were doing. And and now that's just common. That's that's where almost all of these, um, you know, the, the, what they do is they come up with things that what they'll do is lie and say, da 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 is the reason uh, that COVID is spreading, right? Uh, and of course, that da 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 da, if you actually look at it, is is a complete and utter falsehood. But once they utter it, they have a whole audience, and as they say, you know, like and fly around the world three times before the truth can get, get its boots on. And that's the, truly the case with how the whole conspiracist universe works is that they just throw garbage out there into the information stream and um, people globally buy into it, partly because it's not the official story. I mean, it's, it's this really 
sort of bizarre uh, reverse gullibility where they see themselves as being skeptical, hyper-skeptical of, of things and can see into the real reality. But actually their skepticism of it doesn't extend to it doesn't extend to the conspiracy garbage that's being thrown out there. They're not skeptical of that stuff at no. all. Which is I find that incredibly ironic, and and I want to talk about in a second. But it, you're what I find interesting is that they're being the programming is literally meant to program people yeah. who are dissatisfied with their current software and want different software implemented into their right yeah, hardware. They, they, they need to have a basically a different mechanism for how they know the world exactly that's their, so it's their new epistemology yeah. and but it is as you say it's a pathological epistemology it's their windows 11 i guess basically yeah. Yeah. which yeah. i refuse to update to at the moment <laughs> I'm afraid of what it's going to do. Nothing's going to work if I do that. So I'm just staying away from it. Blue screen of death. (laughs) Congratulations. And that's all it's going to say for like ever. Um, So that brings me in many ways, segues to the chaos by design chapter, which I found informative and scary because I had no idea about, and I'm going to call it this, YouTube's accelerationist algorithm. Mm -hmm. That is very, very scary uh, because basically the argument you're making, not the argument, the, the, the research you're providing in that chapter is to demonstrate that even though YouTube doesn't want to give us access to what that algorithm is, that algorithm, when you watch it, if you're curious, in other words, anyone who's either intellectually curious or alienated and wanting different software, both of those people could fall victim to the rabbit hole effect by watching a YouTube video and not being attentive to what they're watching in the moment. Because as we know, YouTube videos will quickly quickly transition from the end of one video to five seconds and then the next video starts. And what you highlight in that chapter is that the next video is always going to be a more intense version of the previous video's content. So that by, by the time you get into five videos into it, you are being essentially accelerated in terms of your radicalization simply based on an algorithm that YouTube has as part of its general platform. Is that right? And, and, and what, what, makes, what makes a video become you know, part of that algorithm what makes them controversial or, or basically the, the metric that they use is engagement. If, if, a, if a video has received a lot of engagement on a particular topic, then that becomes a video that will then be recommended by the algorithm because that's what, that's what the algorithm's looking for. Oh, you like this subject? Well, here's a video that got a lot of engagement on this same subject, right? That's their thinking. But what engagement means typically on social media platforms, and it isn't just YouTube, and we'll talk about Facebook here in a minute, but, but YouTube is particularly toxic because uh, the video platform is so potent in terms of radicalizing people and making them believe that they're obtaining new knowledge that's actually 90% bogus. And, um, you know, and, and video is great for doing that you know but lots but, of evidence this yeah yeah but so this whole engagement concept is what all of these social media platforms use as the basis of their algorithms and the whole idea is that they they want to keep you using their website right that's it's profit motive but but in the process what they're doing is that they are actually uh, engaging or actually fomenting 
conspiracist controversy because a lot of the con the the engagement is the result of you know the the controversy that a particular conspiratorial or conspiracist video will put up and yeah so it has the effect as it did with Dylan Roof of drawing people down into this uh, rabbit hole where they they start out with a single nugget of an idea and the more they learn from the the algorithm the more uh, the deeper into the rabbit hole they go and um it's really an insidious effect, but uh, we're really seeing it now also with Facebook and Twitter. Um, and Facebook in particular is a real problem because um, there's, they've been so irresponsible about taking down extremist content, uh, but they've been a major, they were a major enabler of the insurrection. Uh, a lot of the insurrection planning and stuff like that actually took place on Facebook, not on these right-wing platforms like Parler, although there was a lot of it on Parler as well. But but Facebook was actually the number one platform. And it's where we're seeing uh, all this COVID disinformation being spread, all these uh, attacks on school boards and health districts and uh, people organizing uh, protests and, and invasions of state capitals and other buildings. Um, it's uh, is, is all being permitted by Facebook, even while it claims it is taking this content down. It's not taking it down effectively because they don't want to invest in the manpower that's going to uh, be required to do this. And secondarily, the other reason they don't want to do it is that the algorithm is the the engine of their prop their profits. Yeah. So fundamentally, the, what Americans are faced with here is, and, and, and of course, social media is one component of this. But we also are faced with it in terms of right wing media like Fox News, where we basically we have corporations who are making money off of killing our democracy, and um, you know it's it's basically killing democracy for fun and profit. Yeah. And, and, you know, we've got to get it. In. Somebody's got to do something to get it under control. And fascism I, sells, right? What? Fascism sells right now. Oh, yeah. 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 Partly because, you know, our memories are so bad. And we've also done a, such a shitty job of teaching kids history. Great transition to my next question, which is the one that worries me the most. Uh, I don't know if you've seen, it's on Internet Archive, the uh, recruiting video, Taking Back the Future. It's animated. Uh, and it starts with a young boy in the box of Kleenex and then the three kind of like neo-Nazis. No. Oh, it's fantastically awful because it's really, really effective as a recruiting tool. Uh, it's got the right music, got the right animation, got the right images. It's, it's Islamophobic, it's transphobic, it's homophobic. It's got, it covers all the bases yeah. without calling everything. And all you see is this young boy following these three buff guys that are changing society wherever they walk. And so they're constantly giving each other the thumbs up. And that ends with, a tr with the dream of the 1950s MAGA dream of the heteronormative family having the backyard barbecue with neighbors. And that's the ending. And everybody who was gay or homosexual or whatever has been transformed into the norm, right? And so 
Part of what bothers me, and Berger touches upon this in his book on extremism, and my question to you would be, do you think that the future of uh, radicalization is going to be exclusive to the recruitment of younger people through the use of things like video game forums, social media, and digital technologies, which I know is already happening, and I just referenced that one video, but I'm wondering if it's going to be like an, ex- an exclusive targeting of uh, conspiracism aimed at young people, particularly children, that the, that the demographic is going to get younger and younger as they realize that this is working more and more when they can. Because I know that 16-year-olds are being indoctrinated, and by the yeah. time they're 18, they're joining the military, and they're infiltrating the military as white nationalists. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, yeah, we're, I mean, the leader of Patriot Front, the most probably the most widespread neo-fascist organization in the United States is a 22-year-old kid from Texas. So he got radicalized when he was 14 or 15. Um, you know as well as I do that this has been going on since, really since Gamergate, yeah. I think is was the big opening for uh, opening up the world of gaming uh, to uh, recruitment. But yeah, there's a terrific amount of recruitment that goes on in, in like game chat rooms on Steam and on these other platforms, when gamers just start chatting among themselves and pretty soon you find yourself in a chat room with a guy who tells you that, you know, well, secretly Jews are controlling the world and that's the reason for your, all your problems. Um, and, you know, and then it just goes down the rabbit hole from there. And that's certainly what, I mean, that was what Gamergate was about, was uh, providing an opening for white nationalists to, uh, start recruiting gamers who were, you know, pissed at feminists. And so they come in and say, well, yeah, you know, feminism is just cultural Marxism. And that's a, which is a white nationalist conspiracy theory that was, you know, promulgated by Anders Breivik, among other people. And, you know, the, the, they, and, and these young kids have no idea. And so, yeah, we actually, I mean, it's been something that's been ongoing, I would say, intensely for the last four or five years is that there's been a terrific amount of recruitment of young people through these venues through that they leverage every little opening they can possibly get and you know um, what's his name uh, andrew anglin the guy who ra- runs uh, uh the daily stormer the neo-nazi uh, internet rag which fortunately now only exists in the tiniest corners of the internet but in 2015 and 2016 was readily available to anybody and uh, was all over the internet. Uh, Anglin made clear that he was, he was, he explicitly said, we're starting, we're, we're, I need to, I try to make my website attractive to, and to 13 year olds, that that's the demographic I'm shooting for. I'm trying to recruit young people because uh, that's where we, that's where we change America. And I don't know how, you know, obviously being deplatformed is, <laughs> is cut into his success rate quite a bit, but it is still happening. And I think that it's just going to get worse, especially especially the more we normalize this idea that what happened January 6th was uh, just a political protest and that these people were patriots, uh, that they were behaving patriotically. The more that that idea gets spread around. I think it's going to, we're going to see the recruitment extend uh, to older demographics as well. And I think it's just going to intensify. 
And you covered some of this in your recent uh, Daily uh, Coast articles is two of them that I think interconnect to this issue is uh, the black flags that are now being put up as a sign of no quarter, like we are the ones that will eliminate you. Yeah, uh, we're and just going to kill you. We're not going to, we're not, yeah. yeah. That's what the black flags Yeah. Mean. And on the other hand, the normalization, like they just had the love fest in LA uh, and you had a pro- big Proud Boy presence, et cetera. And this is getting much more normalized. Like Tiny and, was there. And that's my point. Tiny was there. And Tiny's connected to all the stuff that we've been talking about. And yet he's out and about and enjoying his freedom and still advocating for this political insurrection. It seems to me, and a lot of people don't understand it when I say this is, again, you're alarmist, you're kind of hyperbolic, which I don't think I am. But can you just, in your own words, explain to people why these groups, which you say can number in the millions in this country right now, are literally advocating for a second civil war in this country? Well, it's because they don't want to put up with the rest of us. <laughs> but but yeah, but they also think that this is their moment. Uh, and they believe they have the police on their side. And to some extent, they do. Uh, certainly we uh, have seen a lot of, there's a, a tremendous amount of Oath Keeper um, membership uh, involved with uh, that uh, is law enforcement. And when I was out covering these Proud Boys and Patriot Prayer events with featuring Tiny Toisi and uh, his gang of thugs out there in the streets of Portland, it was very obvious that the police were sympathetic to them and antipathetic to their the people protesting them. And frankly, and, and they were treating, you know, the, the, it's obvious that they watched a lot of Fox News because a lot of these people were just protesting, exercising their First Amendment right. They weren't engaging in violence or any of that. And yet the cops treated them as if just being out there protesting them was an act of violence. Uh, and uh, I think that's really problematic. Uh, I, I think that the police culture in general is extremely problematic. And the extent of infiltration within the ranks of law enforcement by right-wing extremists is uh, at the root of a lot of our problem. And uh, nobody is really looking at that very hard. Um, uh, nobody is talking about that very much. Uh, but I think that that's got to be the first step. When, when we talk about police reform is let's get rid of these extremists who have worked their ways, wormed their ways into our police departments because there's a ton of them. And they're the guys, they're, they're the guys, if they're not actually doing the, uh, the prejudice or discriminatory enforcement themselves, they're encouraging the environment in which it takes place. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and frankly, I, I, I viewed the uh, resistance, the police resistance to being vaccinated as a as a prime opportunity. It's like, hey, you 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 fire all those guys, you're going to have half your problem solved right there. They are almost outing <laughs> themselves. Like a, there's a Venn diagram there yeah. that's a huge amount of overlap. They're just <laughs> doxing themselves basically by not wanting to be vaccinated yeah. and their political right. reasons for. And I, I understand it's like one third of the military at this point also that's fighting the vaccination and that's going to be a problem essentially. So I think that there's probably some overlap between their political beliefs and their anti-vaccine status. So I think that's a really good point, which connects to the most, probably the most important chapter in the entire book is a pill for healing. And I know that you outlined 15 steps. I think it's fantastic that you are trying to educate people, especially, you know, a lot of families are dealing with this, a lot of 
partners or losing their partners or, or losing friends as a consequence of red pilling or falling down these rabbit holes. And you outline 15 steps, all interconnected, all very important, but I'm make, I'm going to make the, I'm going to ask the awful question of asking you to pick three of those 15 steps that you would recommend. If if you're going to walk away with anything, what would be three things that you would recommend people pay attention to if they are in fear of someone they love or care for being falling into a red pill rabbit hole. Yeah. And of course I compiled these by talking to people who were in the field and do it because uh, I can't claim to have had any success in myself and in drawing people out of these rabbit holes, but I talked to people who have and um, there, there are a number of steps, including some that I myself violated. <laughs> you know, I, I don't suffer fools gladly, so I, kind of, I can be uh, kind of blunt and, and, and uh, piss people off. You know, when I'm dealing with them interpersonally, it's like, no, what? You can't believe <laughs> It's like, oh, you believe that? Yeah, which is exactly what you don't do. You can't do. What you actually said, yeah, that's right. You have to do is take an empathetic response. And um, I mean, those are the three takeaways. If I were to give them, is first to be empathetic, to spend a lot of time listening to the person that. Well, even that, I would say the predicate of all this is that don't do it with just anyone. You can't do this online. And it's a tremendous amount of work. It's very fraught. You have only uh, maybe 50-50 chance of success at best. So do it very advisedly and make it be someone you care about because that's the nub of everything that you're going to, whether you're going to succeed or not, is that it, that is building that interpersonal relationship that hopefully you already have with this person and, and using that as a, a springboard, sort of a lever to get in there and, and crack them, crack open that, that shell of unreality they've built around themselves. And so, so, you know, that empathetic response is, is really central, being empathetic. Uh, whatever you do, don't start out trying to, to debunk any of this shit because this just puts them into defense mode, gets, gets their backs up. They immediately see you as part of the conspiracy. They, uh, and, and you become someone they, you know, they just go, you know, so don't do that. It's key to maintaining the, the sort of being able to keep the dialogue going. And then once, once you get the dialogue going, it usually takes quite a bit of time, you know, spending interpersonal time with a person going, you know, camping or bowling or whatever, uh, doing things with them and having real interpersonal time to the point that they start to value their relationship more than they with you than they do necessarily these conspiracy theories that they cling to. And it's usually somewhere in there that you can start finding little openings, uh, usually things like, uh, well, Trump said this, but that just is not true. And you can show them how it's not true, right? Or yeah, or Mike Lindell said this, or you know, whoever is out there, Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, you know, but there's always, there are always those little opportunities. And eventually you can get the conversation going to where you can actually do some actual debunking, and then you can bring them around. I mean, the key is to, I think, getting to people to recognize that they're being conned, right? And, and that's a really tricky thing. 
You can't ever, people, if you ever talk to somebody who's been the victim of a con artist, there'll be an absolute denial <laughs> that they were conned, you know, even if, even though they've lost a million bucks and just furious about it, know they've been conned, but they won't still won't really admit it. Right. And that's, that's normal human psychology and people just will not cop to being conned because they don't want to be that stupid. Right. But, but, Ultimately, you you find ways to get them to understand that you're being conned. They're having you on. You're being used. Because that's the reality. Right. And there's residues of trauma and getting used. There's residues yeah. of trauma and all that. That Hopefully, yeah. if you highlight that, the, the emotional impact they're left with, yeah. you might there might be. Because what it sounds like, it, again, I hate to, I don't actually hate to make these comparisons because <laughs> I think they're really uh, instructive and I think valid between the work you're doing and what uh, Robert Harris doing in regards to psychopathy. And so one of the things that my students constantly ask me is like, well, can you, is there any way to rehabilitate a psychopath? And my answer up until recently was no, until I started reading there's these studies emerging from uh, Norway and some Scandinavian countries that are saying there might be a possibility, but it takes immersion and it, and it takes catching them at a really young age. And what you do is basically you reward ethical, empathetic behavior in children that demonstrate psychopathic tendencies. And it sounds like much of what you're advocating for is like these people who fall down these, these rabbit holes have fallen into ironically, and I know this is counterintuitive, these are antisocial cultures that exist that render people antisocial in their behavior. And if you want to take someone out of that, you need to re-socialize them and create right. these threads of empathy that then teaches them how to be human again, but a human That's that exists among other humans. Exactly. That the bonds of empathy are the key to all of this. Yeah, there's a whole narrative arc to the story of being of going down conspiracy theory rabbit holes. Uh, it starts out, you know, there's this upward arc where you they feel really empowered, you know, they got all the secret knowledge, and then now they're connecting with other people in the same universe, and these people are praising them, and they're actually uh, retweeting their stuff on social media, and and you're making all these connections and now you're going even further down the rabbit hole. You're making even new discoveries that, that when you more acclaim, whatever, or when you more tweets. Um, and so, so initially it does feel very empowering. And, uh, but it, there's, uh, there's sort of a zenith that it reaches where things start going sideways. Uh, typically the, there's for one thing, the, the conspiracist community is, filled with the most contentious, paranoid, suspicious, and just generally unpleasant people in the entire universe. <laughs> and they're constantly at war with each other. They're constantly yeah. stabbing each other in the back. They're constantly getting jealous of somebody else for being more popular than they are, or what have you. And so they're constantly tearing each other down, uh, which is a good thing. The but, TRS phenomenon, right? The, but, the right stuff you know, phenomenon. But, but in the terms of uh, where when people go down the rabbit holes, this is when they first start sort of getting negative feedback. And of course, the other negative feedback that they get is in their real lives because buying all this stuff has really profound consequences for your interpersonal relationships with, with people out there in the real world, including in your workplace, as well as your politics. And so you become increasingly isolated. Uh, you stop voting because you don't think that 
you think that the whole voting system is rigged and just a joke anyway. So you don't you you basically render yourself without any political power whatsoever. And then sort of the end of the narrative arc is you know you go off and live in the woods of northern Idaho in a cabin uh, with a stock of rice and beans in the in the basement. You know, uh, getting ready for the end of the world, and you don't trust anybody who you ever encounter, you don't trust anybody even in your own neighborhood, certainly not in your own family, because they're part of the conspiracy too. And they've been trying to convince you otherwise. So obviously they are definitely part of the conspiracy. It's incredibly disempowering, but it feels initially very empowering. But yes, it's at the end of the narrative arc, you're isolated, you're disempowered, and you're fundamentally a nobody. Which is really sad because you start off alienated. People pay attention to you for the wrong yeah. reasons. So you feel agentic. You're an agent suddenly, yeah. which raises you to the level of hero. Now you're part of this like superhero club that tells <laughs> you to tells you that go do your superhero thing alone. You go right back to alienated. And yet yeah. somehow you have this artificial connection to this artificial group that is advocating for you, but there's no real substance behind it. There's no lived right. conditions of reality that day on a daily basis reinforce that identity or that sense of belonging. Because as you said, the end result is you living alone in the cabins with like 10 ARs and you know, a <laughs> stock of rice and beans waiting for the civil war to come and watching a lot of YouTube videos and following a lot of tweets to make sure they announce it correctly yeah. because you know like yeah those- well, I mean, you, and you don't watch this, you don't watch your football team anymore because one of those players kneeled well, that's you know, it you know, i mean everything's gone everything yeah. except yeah. the anthem so, and the flags so, so it's really it's pretty interesting dynamic and you know and and i really have seen i've seen so many families uh get torn up and just destroyed by this shit so and, I, and you've been extremely generous with your time. I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I just have like yes or no questions you can answer really quickly. Critical is Rick is critical race theory the new cultural Marxism? Yeah, which is the new political correctness. Right. It's all or it's which actually is the new protocols of the seven elders of life. <laughs> which uh, I don't know that Henry Ford basically got published and allowed the translation to end up in Hitler's hands. It yeah, went from yeah, Henry Ford to this, Hitler's hands. Hitler's yeah, he was. Well, this is the reason that Hitler awarded the Iron Cross, you know. Uh. <laughs> uh, this is America. Okay, so, hey, thank you for that. Does Kevin McDonald actually understand the Frankfurt School? Because I read Culture of Critique, I'm like, I don't think he understands the Frankfurt uh, School. Neither does James Lindsay or any of these guys. Right. No, well, that's, see, that's, that's the key to a lot of conspiracism is that they completely distort and wildly mischaracterize all kinds of stuff, including, especially the stuff that's central to their conspiracy theories, like the Frankfurt School. Yeah, it's it's a pretty interesting academic school. It did not uh, influence the course of Western civilization. <laughs> it had it had a it had a, a noteworthy effect in certain some circles of academia, uh, but uh, it was you know these guys try to claim that that cultural Marxism originated multiculturalism, which is total horseshit. Multiculturalism arose from anthropology, primarily it was actually, it was out of Columbia, uh, which is where they where the Frankfurt School moved to. And it was, you know, uh, primarily Jewish scholars who uh, came up with the idea of multiculturalism, but um, it was not a Jewish plot. 
So it's not, uh, like, it's not like they talk about the fact that they, most of them came to the United States because they were escaping Nazi persecution as Jewish intellectuals in Germany at the time. Like that part just is left well, out. And then, and then they did return to Frankfurt. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and Adorno yeah, was very conservative. They're influential, but they're not, they didn't set the course of Western civilization. And they certainly, it was not their intent. I mean, one of the, the really funny things about this is that they, portray the Frankfurt School academics as being the reason we have so much permissiveness in modern cultural, uh, you know, in films and music and so on and so forth, that they're responsible for this modern permissive society. But actually, the Frankfurt School was incredibly critical of all that stuff. They were like, this is bad for us, you know. And I mean, that was they, they're the important critique of modern culture that's there in the Frankfurt School. Extremely. I mean, Adorno... Exactly the opposite way that these guys describe it. Totally. I mean, they were one of the first ones to critique the harmful psychological effects of canned laughter in movies and things in television because it's like that kills humor. It kills the dynamic behind it. So, yeah, they help. I don't know if Kevin McDonald... Kevin, if you're watching, there's a whole section on the culture industry. (laughs) Did Kevin pass away? No, no, he's still around. Okay, can I doubt he'll watch it. But yeah, read the part of the culture industry. They're, they're really against everything you think they're in favor of. All right, one last question, Dave, a positive one. Of Orca and Men, you, what can we learn from Killer Whale that maybe um, gets us out it of actually, the It actually has real bearing on this. I was about I, to I'm say, so yeah. I'm glad you asked this because I was going to end with it anyway. Okay. Uh, it's, it seems very often, and you know, I started writing about Killer Whales in the early 90s, but I was an environmental reporter when oh. I first started doing this stuff. And I was writing about militias in the 90s as a environmental backlash story. And wow. that was how I first started. I mean, they'd been in my news reportage as a daily newsroom staffer for the previous 15 years. Fascinating. But, um, but they had it wasn't a focused subject. Um but I, but I was an environmental reporter, and I started writing about them. And I wound up being one of the only guys who had gone out and interviewed militiamen in the woods prior to Oklahoma City. Huh. And so after Oklahoma City, I had a ton of media appearances as a militia expert. <laughs> I'm just a journalist, people. You know? but, uh, but at least I was able to shed some light on that stuff. And I already had a relationship with uh, the SPLC people uh, dating back to my newspaper years, but uh, I began working with them a lot more. And uh, a guy who did a lot of the organizing in the Northwest, his name is uh, Bill Wasmuth, talked me into making it a a dedicated beat uh, because he convinced me that one of the problems that most of the people in civil rights work and have, uh, have with journalists is that they tend to just parachute into these stories and don't have the historic background. So somebody with uh, who has sort of the historic contextual understanding is extremely valuable to them. So I decided to be that person. And so, but I was, I had moved out here to uh, the Seattle area in, uh, in the early nineties, actually they, uh, in 89. Decided, and I was starting to freelance in about 92, and I knew that uh, this, these killer whales were just a fascinating story because uh, they kind of represented everything, uh, so much of the Northwest environmental 
issues story, lack of salmon and toxins in the water and everything else. So I started writing about him then and, and such a fascinating story. I just kept with it and I kept doing a lot of freelance stories over the years. After I wrote And Hell Followed With Her, I have to tell you that that book left me hollowed out. Uh, it was really an emotionally difficult story to write because covering those trials and seeing the evidence and where they blew this little girl's face off just really devastated me. She was the same age as my daughter. They killed her on my daughter's birthday. Oh, and, wow. um, and so I was, I felt, and I felt that I've really felt empathetic to the mother who was there for every day of the trial. Um, so it was a very, I, I was just an emotional wreck at the time that by the time I was done, I felt like I had, been hollowed out by the just the toxic nature of what I've been writing about, and Coll- so I said, collateral okay. damage. That's, that's... I was going to write my orca book. <laughs> I'd had it in <laughs> my mind for a long time, okay. putting together all the material that I put together over the years, uh, writing freelance articles, but also more because I my everything picked up right about the same time the movie Blackfish came out, uh, and that I think really piqued interest in killer whales. And and so basically, I was providing you know the full story of uh, I wanted to explain the full story of killer whales and why they are uh, why they're an important species and why our relationship with them is important, um, and also why they're the coolest animals on the planet because <laughs> they are. <laughs> it's hard to argue. Yeah. Part of why they're the coolest animal on the planet is. That, you know, I mean, they have been lords of the ocean for six million years. I mean, they are the apex species in the oceans, yeah. and really, from which is for most of Earth's history, so, uh, or for the for the last six million years, that's you know, for, that's the largest portion of the planet yeah. that they are the rulers of. Yeah. And uh, they're in, they're the most successful species. They're, they're really counterparts to humans in many, many ways, including that they are far and away the most intelligent species out there in the water. And uh, not they're not significantly more intelligent than bottlenose dolphins, but they are more intelligent than them. Uh, and they have the most gearified brains. They're the second largest brain, most gearified brain on the planet, which means that they have more neuron links and everything else incredibly intelligent species they have their own languages and their own cultures and one of the things that that in studying them that i sort of twigged on to is that fundamental to orca culture is empathy uh they they survive because they are profoundly empathetic to not only each other but to others uh, other species out there in the water uh, not necessarily their prey. <laughs> I was about to say, don't they play volleyball with seals? Even then, even then, it's it's pretty remarkable how uh, killer whales try to make when they kill things seem to deal fairly merciful deaths. Um, they're very swift about it. Uh, although chasing uh, when they when they chase uh, young humpbacks, they're um, uh, they can it can take hours and it's grueling. So. Um, but otherwise, yeah, like when they kill sharks, it's just boom, boom, you're dead. <laughs> now let's tear your liver out. <laughs> is that why they toss the seals? It's a quick kill. It's not volatile. It is a quick kill. It renders them unconscious. It renders them unconscious. 
And so maybe I, and it may, may actually kill them. Okay. We're not sure. All we know is we recover the car because they're very dead. <laughs> so empathy, you would say. Yeah. So part of my thesis is that the, one of the things we really can learn from them is that, you know, we th- tend to think of empathy as a vulnerability, as a liability, uh, sort of in our ability to survive. And for them, uh, empathy is foundational to everything they do. Um, And they are profoundly empathetic. Uh, Those big giant brains that I'm talking about, one of the the aspects of it is that, you know, they, they use those brains for echolocation. And they not only are able to share each other's signals when they, when you know, they create a, an echolocation signal that goes out into the water, but the the what enables them to see, of course, is the bounce back that comes back from it. And they all share in the bounce back, so they can all see what each other is doing. When they live with each, they live with each, their families for their entire lives, and they don't just see each other in the water; they see inside each other. Their echolocation provides them with essentially a sort of uh, sonogram of of what they're looking at. So when one of the members is pregnant or one of them is sick or one of them has anything going on, they all know because they can all see inside. And uh, I talked to a brain neurologist who said that this has just really powerful, has to have a really powerful effect on their cultural lives, their social lives, because it means that their sense of self is inextricably bound up with each other in ways that we could barely even comprehend. We can't even comprehend. So for killer whales, empathy is is really a foundational trait and it is essential, it's it's, it's an evolutionary trait. And it's also one that's, uh, basically essential for their long-term survival. It's a lot of the reason that they have been lords of the ocean and have su- survived so successfully as a species for 6 million years. Fascinating. And, and we've only been around 200,000. Wow. So Lots to learn. And we're already fucking up the planet. <laughs> yeah, and we're taking them with us ironically. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, who's yeah. Who's smarter than that? So I just want to confirm, because this is fascinating to me. The thing that we are socializing to thinking is a vulnerability, our empathy, right? And mm-hmm. especially hyper-masculine cultures that we're raised in, it's like you right. don't want to be the weak link. You want to be stronger. You want right. to strive to be the alpha. And if you can't be an alpha, be a good beta so that you're at least included in the club. What you're saying is that killer whales actually teach empathy as a strength, as one of their positive characteristics, which reminds me, and I hate to be corny about this. Can't get away from one or the other usually. But what I find interesting is that it functions very much. And the idea of like that the self is tied to the group and they can see each other. I hate to be crazy, uh, crazy or crazy or corny about this, but it sounds like you're describing the force and Jedis and a, and, a, and a culture of people that exist with a relationship to each other, where what they feel is yes. this thing called the force, but what yes. we call it is empathy. If you can empathize with the things, including objects, yeah. including the nature, natural environment, including the living th- species and things that surround you as not just things, but as extensions of life, then your relationship to empathy will become a strength as opposed to a social weakness. Yeah, I, I and I think the key there is that for killer whales, the empathy is founded not just on sort of feelings mm. as they are for humans, but they're actually it's founded on sensory input. 
you know, the, 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 the echolocation sense that they have is just incredibly powerful. And it's the reason they have such large brains. That's what wow. most of the brains are dedicated to doing is uh, performing the echolocation function. You need an audio book that one day, seriously. That's that would be a great one, I think. I'd be a great yeah. seller. Well, I, I I really enjoyed writing that book. It was the first book I didn't have to be dead serious. <laughs> I, I, I have a sense of humor, and I like you it. do. I see it in, in the other works. I like, but but I can't ever put it into my books because um, I mean you can. There's some wry humor in the yeah. extremist book, mostly because they do such crazy shit that you have to laugh sometimes. <laughs> yeah. It's the mash but, syndrome, right? If I, I got to operate and laugh, it's kind of it's kind of nasty humor, and, and and the orca book let me do just my usual dry and warm humor. That's, oh. And so, I, I got to be more myself in that book than any of my others. Well, along those lines, did you know, Dave, that the original pure Aryans were telepathic and therefore their sense of empathy was extraordinary, I would assume, right? <laughs> or are we talking about uh, the, the Iranians? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The original Aryans, you know. Like, the original Aryans. That's yes. a, what are, Iran is a, is a bastardization of Aryans. You know, is that why it's closer to Tibet than you know Europe and the rest? Yeah, no, the well, the place that the Aryan people were believed to originate from yeah. was northern Iran. Yeah, those Persians were white. That was like that was like <laughs> uh, three hundred. You ever see three hundred? Such a such a, a mind blowingly bad movie, but especially <laughs> because it made the Persians out to be a bunch of black people. Seriously, yeah, and they had to speak really weird. and got all this jewelry. <laughs> Whereas the Spartans, you know, are Fossenbender and all these great white. looking guys. It's like, yeah, yeah, they're these great white guys. Except for the disabled one who's like, okay, yeah, and know, he's the traitor. No empathy for them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Just he, a little well, he bit. was a villain. Yeah. yeah, yeah absolutely. They, yeah, yeah. No, that was just one of the worst movies ever. Body types are important. Really look good. <laughs> I think John Stewart called it like the ab movies. This is a bunch of guys with abs <laughs> everywhere. It's like when he had them back when the Daily Show was a thing. Yeah. Well, Dave, your sense of humor is is very uh, present and uh, right. it can be sensed. So I really appreciate that you bring that. Thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for agreeing to uh, come on the podcast. Uh, thank you for fighting the good fight. Uh, believe it or not, a lot of us are paying attention. A lot of us are taking your work and trying to disseminate it to younger people so that they know what to look out for, so that they know oh, yeah, how to it. protect themselves. Yes. And more importantly, how to resist this uh accelerationist slash eliminationist moment we're living in history and just push back against it. And I think you you raised one of the key issues is make empathy one of your strengths and then use yeah. it to try to appeal to those people that yes. are at least their neurons are still are still there and available it, it, for access. Let's be empathetic with each other too. Uh, up, yeah. I get dismayed by uh, the extent of infighting that happens among the people who are opposing this Partly because we all want to think we're we're exactly right, and the other person's yeah, your, your nuance is wrong, and and I just I don't find that helpful, and uh, I just think it's important to you know let's be empathetic with each other. We don't have yeah. to be heroes; we can all just yeah. be equal. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. If people want to get in contact with you or find you, Dave, I know they already they, know that you write for the Daily very Post. easy. Uh, a couple ways. Um, I so I am on Twitter, but I only allow dms for my followers but uh you can always uh i have a, an email at daily coast 
uh, there's a link there to any of my stories at Daily Coast that uh, will get, put you in touch with me. Um, it's just dave.nywert at dailycoast.com. And uh, anybody who wants to write me, yeah, I'm, I'm very accessible. He, and I got a vouch for that. Very accessible, very professional, extremely nice person. So Except I'm wearing my t-shirt today. So. If you're, if you're <laughs> interested, well, you're not sitting in front of a crowd with a microphone in your hand. Otherwise, I'm sure you would have put on the suit and the whole thing that I see you do on YouTube, ironically. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I, so, I'd just rather be myself. Yeah, no, which I actually enjoy. I tell my students I have to put this on as camouflage in order to neutralize right. the no, radicalism when, of my when I was a, When I was a newsroom manager, when I was a, a, an editor, a news editor, I always wore a yeah. monkey suit. So You got to put the monkey suit on. I don't have to now. <laughs> uh, you don't have to brag about it. Anyway, Dave, uh, anything you're working on right now? Just out of curiosity. I am, I'm working actually on a, a proposal that my agent is selling uh, for a book about the... Uh, coming insurgency working title is uh beyond the rubicon and uh they what is it something like the radical rights war on democracy okay all right um, so i'm writing on that stuff but i'm trying to use like movies as symptoms of the fact that it's going on in culture so i might hit you up with an email or two just to like have a conversation about the psychopathy accelerationist overlap that seems to happen so yes Again, thank you very much. Love Baby Yoda in the background. Love your new office. That's Grogu. Grogu. It's, that's right, Grogu. I always call him Baby Yoda. I, I, I got to the episode. I, I know the name. I just like Baby Yoda better. And we don't know what he'll be called in the future. Who knows? Exactly. They might change the name. They, Yoda might be the moniker. I mean, everybody's yeah, called Who knows? Yoda. I mean, hell, they had Mark Hamill show up. Which was a really young Mark Hamill. I'm surprised. He did a lot of great <laughs> Yeah, how do you do that? I wasn't <laughs> expecting that. And I kind of liked it, but I couldn't put it in the time frame of the movies. I was like, well, I guess that's after Return of the Jedi, I guess. I have yeah, no exactly. It's between it's between uh, uh, Return of the Jedi and uh, and then the follow-up. Yeah, they're going to have a lot of explaining to do of why we don't, we don't see Mandalorians in the rest of the franchise outside of a bounty hunter who's not a Mandalorian. That's going to be a very... I don't yeah. think they're going to do it. But Again, thanks, Dave. Nice meeting you. I uh, hope I'm very much looking forward to your new book. Any uh, ETA and when it'll come out next year, hopefully? It's probably going to be late next year. Um, okay. I don't think I'm going to get the, the manuscript done before March or April. Hurry so. up, Dave. We're looking forward yeah. to it. Okay. <laughs> well, thanks again, Dave. And, All right. Uh, take care. Take care. And that'll do it for today's episode of the Identity Paradox. Hopefully... You enjoyed it. Uh, I definitely find it very instructive and uh, we'll definitely see you next time. Thanks again. Oh, and don't forget to please subscribe to future episodes if you enjoyed today's. Thanks. <laughs>